Lord, we praise you for the hope of Messiah. And we praise you, Father, that Messiah has come. And I pray today that as we open your word, our hearts would be thrilled with the joy that comes from your spirit to help us not only to reflect on the meaning, but what I pray to appropriate just from personal experience of your joy. I pray today if there's people with us that have never experienced adoption, they've never come into your family, I pray today your spirit would bring them to an experience as adopted sons, sons and daughters of the King. We praise you for the meaning of Christmas. I pray that our hearts would worship you as the way we look at your word and receive it with anticipation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bible this morning, Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter four. I told someone I wish I had uh, the ability to have a stunt double, somebody that looked like me, and uh, I would have them leave church as everybody was driving off and go down in a motorized scooter doing tricks down Broad Street <laughs> with a cast on their leg. That would be amazing. But that's all you get is me. <laughs> this morning, we're going to continue to look at reflections on Advent. I was thinking about it like this. Uh, imagine somebody said, hey, I want you to try to frame the Christmas story, but you have to do it without using passages in the gospel. You can't use the gospel of Luke. You can't use the gospel of John. Where would you go to demonstrate and to illustrate the story of Advent, the miracle of the incarnation? There's so many places we could go. Last week, we looked in Hebrews, and we saw the miracle that likewise, he partook of the same things. Just like we are flesh and blood that God became man. He was the God-man who died in our place. And this morning, I want to look at a message entitled, The Miracle of Adoption. The Miracle of Adoption. And we're going to look at that concept in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. To get a sense of the context in Galatians, why don't we begin reading this morning in verse 1 of chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son 
than an heir through God. This morning, I want to look at three investigative questions. Three investigative questions as we look at verses four through seven. Three investigative questions to help us understand the miracle of adoption. I'll give you those questions right now. The first one is, what is the backdrop? What is the backdrop? Number two, how did God uniquely intervene? How did God uniquely intervene? And number three, how does this lead to sonship? How does this lead to sonship? We start today looking at what is the backdrop. The key really to this section, if we're going to understand what it means to be a son and daughter, what it means to be adopted, is to understand this word in verse 4. We get into verse 4 and Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come. I was really captivated by that term and over the years have looked at it but I wanted to explore it more. What does it mean, the fullness of time? When the fullness of time had come, because that is significant, because it's when the fullness of time had come that God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So what does this mean? I was looking at various definitions. Several I'll give you here. The word fullness describes what is fulfilled or is completed without any gap. One author said, when the time came, it was the time predetermined by the will of God the Father from eternity past. He came the first time in the fullness of time, and he will return in the fullness of time. At a specific point in time, in the timetable, of God in his infinite wisdom, according to his plan and purposes, according to the fulfillment of his promises, he acted in human history. When we look at that, we think about what is the backdrop of the fullness of time? What is the backdrop of this fullness of time? And we got to think about the promises. And if we were going to go through the promises, we could be here all day because the promises go from Genesis all the way through, all the way to the time of the incarnation. But I wanted just to show you and reflect on a few. I'll go through these and I'm not going to take time for everyone to turn to each passage, but, but I want you to, if you want to write these down, the first one would be the promise in the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, verse 15. At the very beginning, we see the promise of what is to come. When Paul speaks of the fullness of time, he speaks about the fulfillment of what God set in motion from the very opening of the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There would be a descendant that would come from the woman that would ultimately crush Satan. That was a promise right off the bat. And we see the narrowing of this promise. So if you were going to draw a family tree, we know that the Messiah is going to come through Eve. 
but it narrows it down when we get to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, there's a promise that God gives to Abram. And in that promise, he speaks about, in his line, it says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What started as a promise to Eve, that she would have a descendant. It narrows down to a descendant that would come through the line of Abraham. We keep going and we learn as we deal with Moses in Deuteronomy that God has a plan to raise up a prophet greater than Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. You see this growing anticipation. I remember growing up and I always would, uh, when I was at home by myself, even as like a young teenager, my dad was flying a lot at the time, and he used to joke, and he said, uh, when I get over Chattanooga, I can see our house because you got every light on in the entire house. And I didn't like being alone. I'd turn on lights in the closet. I'd turn on lights everywhere. If I just felt better with light, and imagine at night when you're in your bedroom as a kid, and it's dark in your room, but you got the door open. You got light coming into the bedroom. And imagine at first, if you ever at, at night sometimes when Ben's walking out of my room, our room, I'll say, hey, buddy, would you crack the door? And he'll do it, but he'll won't do it just right. I'll be like, no, nah, a little bit more this way, a little bit more this way. No, go back a little bit, a little bit, you know. And, and, and so imagine at the beginning, you got that much light coming into the room. And we see the promise that God gave to Eve the promise in Genesis 3, but then we get to Genesis chapter 12 and that door kicks a little bit more light in the room. We get a little bit further on and we find about how this promise is going to narrow down through the line of Abraham. We learn more about Judah and how it's going to come through Judah and Genesis and Genesis 49. And we learn about what we just read, this prophet that's going to come like Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And we keep going and we get into 2 Samuel and the door moves from here to here to here. And we learn that not only is it going to come through Eve and through the line of Abram, but it's going to come through the line of David. And we keep going. And as we keep going, all of the door just keeps, keeps opening wider and wider and wider. I've told you this before, but one of my favorite pictures of Christmas is the time of the judges. Do you remember like going to the book of Judges? If you've been reading through the book of Judges anytime recently, it's all chaos. You almost feel like it's too rough for kids to hear some of the stories at the end of the book of Judges, we see that the man is murdered, body, the person's murdered, body chopped up, sent to all the tribes of Israel. And you see chaos and sin. And the theme of Judges was man was doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet we read in the book of Ruth, in the opening verse, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. You say, why is that significant? Well, when the nation was at one of its darkest moments, God was orchestrating a love story. And God was orchestrating a love story in the very same place where he would be born hundreds of years later. 
in the fields of Bethlehem, a love story between a devastated widow and a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth would meet on the fields in Bethlehem. And you see the hints of this promise in the midst of pain and in the midst of sin and turmoil, these two meet. And the last word in the book of Ruth ought to echo through our minds. It says in Ruth chapter 4, verse 18, I'll read you four or five verses. Listen to this, what just looks like a simple genealogy. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. It would be through their marriage that the messianic line would come. In Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Gary read our passage this morning. Did you catch what he read? In chapter 9, a promise 700 years before Jesus came. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I, I love this because you see these promises. You see the guarantee that it will happen. How's it going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord will promise it and the zeal of the Lord will bring it to pass in the fullness of time. We read in Isaiah 53, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When is it going to take place? When is this promised suffering servant going to come on the scene? In the fullness of time, God brought forth a son. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the last Record Before I read Malachi, Micah 5, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And then the last book in the Old Testament, in chapter 3, 400 years before Jesus, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Speaking of John the Baptist, 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The backdrop of what Paul says in Galatians 4.4 are the multitude of promises that God has given concerning his son. But then, not only do we see the backdrop of the promise, but the backdrop of the law, the law, the Mosaic law. What we read here and what we find from reading Galatians is one man said, the law of Moses had done its work to drive men to anticipate Christ. The law not only brought condemnation upon us because the wages of sin is death because we could not keep the law, but the law was designed by God through the power of the Spirit to be a tutor, to lead us by the hand to Christ. I like this statement here by one scholar. When the law had fully accomplished its purpose of showing man his utter sinfulness, an inability to live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness, God ushered in a new era of redemption. When he sent forth his son, he provided the righteousness for man that man could not provide for himself. The law served as a way to highlight the holiness of God and man's inability to keep it. And at the right time, at the fulfilled time, at the fullness of time, Christ came. In John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we think about the fullness of time. We think about the backdrop of the promise. We think the backdrop of God's purpose for the law and how the law would act as a guide to bring us to Christ. And at the perfect time, once it had fully accomplished its purpose, Christ the Messiah would be ushered in, but we see not only the, the promise and the law, but think about the circumstances surrounding the coming of Christ. Over the years, I've, I've heard this, and it's fascinating to think about, and just looking at different resources and compiling some different thoughts here. What was the timing when Jesus came to be Messiah? Think about what was going on in the world. What was the cultural moment like? In the providence of God, as Christ came to be Messiah, what was happening in the backdrop? Well, several things. We think about the Greek language. We think about one common language in that area of the world. We think about Koine Greek. We think about the ability for the word of God to be communicated, the ability to spread the message. We think about the, 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 the Pax Romana, and we think about how the Romans were ruling, and it, even as they caused people to be captive to their rule, there was a time of peace. The time of peace brought forth the ability for roads to travel. It, it brought the opportunity for the spread of the gospel. Others have commented on the fact that even in Rome, if not even Israel, there was a spiritual hunger and a deadness amongst people that God was bringing about to usher in that he was the bread of life, that he was living water. We see the synagogues 
that were established, synagogues that were established in that intertestamental period of time, that 400 years of silence after Malachi, and we see these synagogues became avenues and they became places of proclamation for the good news of the gospel. We see so many different realities. Even during this time of Malachi to the birth of Christ, we see the completion of the Old Testament. And all of this was taking place. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So the first question that we have is what is the backdrop? And we look at a backdrop, not only of the promises of God, we consider the law, we consider the circumstances. God brought about these things. But the second question, how did God uniquely intervene when it became the fullness of time? It says here in verse four, but when the fullness of time, and then those next two words are critical, had come, it was time. He was born. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. I want you to consider that this is one of the greatest Christmas texts of all. Because here it is. What is the meaning of the incarnation? Galatians 4.4 tells us. Here it is. In the fullness of time, God was ushering in redemption. And we see all these statements here. We see God sent forth his son. Think about what Paul says in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he came and willingly submitted himself to the will of his father. God sent forth his son. But then we think about what does it qualify next? Born of woman. And this is exciting because this, again, is fulfillment of the promises. Do you, you think about just in the eight or nine verses we read about the promises that prepared for the fullness of time to come? Think about how many of them dealt with the birth of Messiah and the, and, and, the, and the requirement of a woman involved. And we read in Genesis 3 again, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Born of woman, Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then we read in the opening pages of Matthew, right there at the beginning, in verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But then the third one, not only God sent forth his son, not only born of woman, but thirdly, born under the law. Born under the law. And why, again, is this the case? When we think about those questions we looked at, you remember the question last week, why must the Redeemer be truly human? In the catechism I, read, catechism I read to you, listen to this, that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law. In the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, when, when it was clear that we had no hope, when it was clear that our utter sinfulness and inability to live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness was ever before us, 
We could not meet the demands of the law. What did it require? It required God to come as a man because we needed one who was not like us, but we needed one who identified with us. And we needed someone to come to fully meet the requirements of the law that we were unable to meet. That's what he's speaking of here. Born of a woman, born under the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, if you have a temptation today to think about climbing a ladder, you say, why do I want to climb a ladder? That'd be really dangerous for me right now. You climb a ladder to get somewhere higher, don't you? A lot of people think that in order to be a better Christian, in order to be more receivable by God, accepted by God, for God to approve of me, I need to obey the law to earn merit before God. That's a common thing. But what we find in Scripture is the law is not a ladder. The law leads us to prison and gives us the only escape of the Lord Jesus Christ because the law imprisons us because we can't meet its demands. The law doesn't empower us to meet its demands. We can't do it. Uh, we've looked at that statement so many times, and it's been attributed to different people back in the time of the Reformation, but run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law demands something of me that I cannot do. Right now, if you came up to me and said, look, I want to race you right now. Run as fast as you can. I can't do it. I can't do it. You could scream at me. I had coaches in college and high school that screamed at me all the time. But right now, if they got here and they were like, look, I'm tired of you being a weenie. I'm tired of you coming up here on crutches. Get up and run. Run down that aisle. We turned into a Pentecostal church in just two seconds, right? Run down that aisle. I can't do it. You can scream at me. Now think about it. It's no different. The law cannot produce what it requires. I challenge you, if you don't agree with me, go, go home and keep the Ten Commandments this week perfectly. Come back and report how you did next Sunday morning. Meet me in my office at 9 o'clock. Bring me a biscuit. Let me know how you did. We are unable to meet the demands of the law. Friend, why is there Christmas? Because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, that he might meet the requirements of the law for us. You see the hope in that? We're unable. If you're here today and you think that you're pretty good and that doesn't apply to you, let me remind you of where I started this illustration, Deuteronomy 27. It says, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord. He keeps going. The next verse, verse 16, chapter 27. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. We're all in trouble on that one at some point in our life. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man. And what it's speaking of, if you take the overall context, he's speaking of the fact that the law condemns us because where we sin against it, we face the judgment of God. But Jesus 
was born under the law. You see, Daniel 9, 11 says, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And we have a lot in common with the people of Israel because just as they have sinned against a holy God, so have we. And we desperately need one not like us and one who identifies with us to come to keep the law perfectly in our place. We need one to substitute himself for us because the Bible says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 says, think of the implications of this. The wages of sin is death. In the first part of Romans 6, 23, but look back a chapter. Paul has already developed this. We're jumping in the middle of a chapter and a verse. Look at Galatians 3.13 and just a page before, maybe on the same side of what you're open. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I tell you, sometimes I think what happens is we get moved by the nostalgia of the nativity scene. But do you realize, friend, when we look at the nativity scene and how it's pictured, there lies a baby whose purpose in coming was to be a curse for us. It says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And now think about this. We need someone not like us, perfectly divine, but yet fully human. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Wait a minute, you mean to tell me that the only one in human history that kept the law perfectly was Jesus Christ? That's why he came. He came to be a substitute for us. He came to live in our place to keep the law that we could not keep, to be a substitute for sinners, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. When we look at the word redeem, and in this context, what appears to be taking place is he's saying he delivered you from the consequences of breaking the law of God. He delivered you from those consequences. He, he, he canceled the debt against us. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. And, and if, we, if you go over there, turn over there with me real quick. Colossians 2, let's look at this. I think it'll help us better understand what Paul's saying here. Verse 13 and 14. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By what? Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I, I remember, I'm ashamed to tell you, but it, I think it illustrates this. My freshman year of college, I would always park on the grass next to the cafeteria door. And something happened over the course of that year. I would get these little notes from the campus security, but they weren't just notes, they were fines. And I just dismissed them as an immature 18-year-old, and I would drive there almost every day. And they would keep coming. They just kept remembering me. They kept, I never saw them, but they kept putting notes. Well, I didn't think much about it. And then comes May. And I'll never forget it. I couldn't leave campus until the record of debt was paid. There was a record of debt that was adding up against me because of violations that I have committed, had committed. Now, I want you to think about something. The power of the cross is that one born of woman, born under the law, the law keeper who fulfilled it perfectly through his death on the cross, he canceled out the record of debt against you. Why? Because he took on the debt. He took on the wrath. He took on the punishment. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying that in the fullness of time, God brought his son. The meaning of the incarnation is that he came to die in our place, redeeming us, keeping the law perfectly by giving his life on a cross. But the third question, the first question we looked at this morning, what is the backdrop? What is the backdrop of the fullness of time? Number two, how did God uniquely intervene? He uniquely intervened in the incarnation, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, becoming a curse for us. But number three, how does this lead to sonship? Unbelievable. It just keeps going and going and going. It leads to sonship. We learn something in this passage that while Jesus came and uniquely intervened, the only ones who receive this and participate in it and live out of it are those who trust in what he accomplished by faith. Galatians 3, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now look at this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There it is. There it is this morning. Have you trusted in what Christ accomplished at the cross through faith? Have you believed on him? Have you received his gift? Because we know Christ came to adopt us. Ephesians tells us that. In chapter 1, 3 through 6, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. But the invitation goes out, friends. In John 1:12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You like that game Jenga where you just keep piling up stuff? It's always scary, isn't it, the higher it gets. 
But you know what? It, it just keeps going and blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing here. Adoption as sons, sons, spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God, Christ came that we might be adopted. We can't understand the nativity if we don't understand adoption. When we look at this, I want you to think about what adoption is all about. I came across a, uh, some words from an old professor of mine, and he quoted J.I. Packer in a commentary. And, and he made a statement, and it's very, uh, it's, at first it may make you chew on this really hard. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. This is from J.I. Packer. Higher even than justification. This may cause raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God. But he goes on. He says, nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth of the statement. He says something very interesting here. The doctrine of justification makes us right before God the judge. But in the doctrine of adoption, we are loved by God the Father. In justification, the picture is legal. We stand before a judge who makes a pronouncement. But in adoption, Packer says, the judge not only declares you not guilty, but he also gets up off the bench comes down to where you are, takes your chains off of you, and he says, come home with me as my son. Packer says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. That's the truth we need to contemplate here. What a beautiful picture. I stand before a judge only way I can be in right standing with him is that Jesus Christ was born of woman, born under the law to redeem me. But now by grace through faith, I learn that he came to adopt me. He came to place me in his family. I heard a story years ago my dad told and in the years that he got to Romania, there was a a Romanian pastor that had moved to America or an American man that had a ministry in Romania. And, and throughout the years of his involvement over there, he, if I understood the story correctly, he adopted a precious little boy from Romania. And the little boy had nobody that wanted him. And this man was telling the fact that he went to Romania and the way that they did the orphanage was that a child when they found out that there was someone there to adopt them, they would take that little child. And because they were literally t no longer their, what, what they knew and who they were you know, involved with, whatever, it was, it was different now. It was going to be brand new. And, and the little kid, the, the, the adopting parents brought clothes for the child. And the little child would strip down and have nothing on and go into the arms of his parents where they would clothe him and they would take him into their family. And they brought him back, and after they had been here for a while, the child adored his mom and dad. And one day the dad 
was preaching and there was a balcony that was like, he'd been in like those places where the balcony's pretty close to the front. It's just built really close. And in the middle of the sermon, the pastor heard a kid screaming out and he's thinking, you know, what in the world? And he looks up and he sees his son and the son's yelling out, that's my daddy. And he said, the pastor stopped and looked up at the little boy and said, and that's my son. The incarnation is about adoption. Christ came to make us his own, to bring us into his family. I think about that old story of uh, covenant when Mephibosheth was invited to the king's table. He was crippled. He was unable, he was poor, because he had covenant with the king, he was able to enter into the king's palace and sit down with the king. That's the picture of Christmas. We've been adopted. We've been adopted, specifically picked out, loved and chosen, brought into the family, given spiritual blessings I challenge you to think of something here because sometimes for me, I misunderstand the bigger principle. You know, like, uh, what are you, if we could, if we would believe the, the miracle of adoption, I wonder how it would change our view of our circumstances. You say, wait a minute, how does this have to do with anything about trials? But think about it. We learn here that the beauty of this is not just the miracle of God giving us salvation and eternal life, but the miracle that he loves us as a wonderful father, that he cares for us. And a wonderful, caring father acts in the best interest of his child. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says he's speaking about earthly fathers, and then he would say, how much more your heavenly father? What are you going through today that you need to be reminded of that you have a perfect father? He's not out to get you. He came to this world to adopt you. He cares for you. In every circumstance you face, you can be assured forever that he works for his glory and he works for your good. If he's your father, it changes our perspective. It changes our worship. I was talking to someone recently, and they were talking about how they would, they would go to a church with almost a sense of obligation, a sense of obligation of what would happen to them and a sense of condemnation of what would take place if they didn't go, that, that God would get them, that they would never have a chance to be in heaven. Do you realize the difference that happens when you begin to realize that salvation is a free gift? That salvation's not by works. That in salvation, we are adopted. We are chosen, and it changes the way in which we respond to God because now we're not seeking to earn his favor or even to keep his favor, we do what we do out of gratitude and love because of his favor, because we are adopted children in the family. And that's what 
Paul concludes with here. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We were tempted to doubt. I was looking at some old notes of my dad's. We're tempted to doubt when we fail and think about our position in the family of God, but the spirit enables us to cry out to the father. It's something that he gives us because of the spirit. We literally call out Abba father. it's, It's to God, the father, because we have the capacity to, because we are sons. I love this. I remember, uh, when I, as a kid, when, uh, some people probably thought that, uh, uh, my dad was a big deal because it was a large church and it was growing like crazy. And people would often say like, Hey, uh, man, I'd love to meet your dad. I'm like, Hey, come over to the house. I'll walk you right into the living room. You can meet him. Hey, you want to go to dinner with us? I'm going to lunch with him today. Come on. He could be in a meeting as a ninth grader. If I needed to be picked up from school, I could enter into any meeting he was in to say, dad, where is mom? Why? Because I'm a son. No one else had that kind of capacity of relationship with him, but I was his son. He was my dad. He cared for me. He loved me. I was part of the family. You see the miracle here? The miracle is, is that in the incarnation, we are assured that by grace through faith and depending on Christ, that we are adopted sons and daughters of the King. I pray today you're encouraged. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, an heir of the inheritance. I was looking up some definitions of an heir. I came across one that said, believers are co-heirs with Christ. Believers have been given the privilege of sharing Christ's inheritance. As adopted sons of God, Christians are treated as firstborn heirs. We participate in the inheritance. So three questions. Number one, what is the backdrop of the fullness of time? Number two, how did God uniquely intervene? Number three, how does this lead to sonship? This morning as we close, I want you to think of something. God never misses an appointment. God's always on time. Gary alluded to it this morning as he prayed. But do you realize that one of the greatest joys of Christmas is the reminder that Christ was faithful in his first coming? He'll be faithful in his second coming. He will, in the fullness of time, fulfill all that he's promised about the future. Take joy in that. This morning, God has come to adopt us in Christ Jesus. This morning, I pray that you would reflect and just glorify God and what that means. But what about you today? Are you here today and you're thinking, you know what? I don't know if I'm part of the family. I want you to understand that in the miracle of the incarnation, there's an invitation that goes out to you. An invitation like I read earlier in John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You may have a picture of God that he's out to mock you and scold you, that he's out to get you. You may have grown up under such a form of teaching where it's hard for you to even view God as good. But friend, I want you to think of something. This passage assures us that in the incarnation, Christ came to bring salvation. He came that we might have life. Would you bow your head? Father, I thank you for the miracle of Christ coming to save us. We praise you that in our inability, Christ was able. That in our transgressions, he fulfilled the law perfectly. I pray through the power of your spirit, O oh God, that we would grow more and more into the reality of what it means that we are adopted family members, adopted sons. I pray that we would understand that by grace through faith, we have hope. Life changes in our perspective. I pray that all of us would have in common today as we leave a dependence upon you, a dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us. We praise you for the meaning of the incarnation. I pray we'd live out of it. It would, it would bring great joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray.